Jim's Razor, episode 28, coming to you from lockdown once again. I'm Jim Birchall. Very special guest tonight. We're talking the Orang Pendek, and we've got a guy on the show called Richard Freeman, who's an author, and he's also the zoological director uh, for the Centre of 14, 14 Zoology. Um, he's a known cryptid hunter, and he's, he's well-known in the cryptid community, particularly uh, when it comes to the Orang Pendek. So welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Now, you're joining us from Devon down in the West Country, is that correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yep, yep. That's awesome. That's kind of Beast of Bodmin Moor territory, isn't it? It is, yes. There's the Beast of Bodmin Moor, and then there's the, the Beast of Exmoor, and uh, they're yep. seen from Dartmoor as well. And I've actually seen one of these things in broad daylight from a coach. From a coach, is that from right? So coach. were you out were you out hunting for it or did you see No, not at all, not at all. Every time I've been out hunting for it, I've never seen it. But I saw it in broad daylight <laughs> from a coach going from Exeter to Bristol on the outskirts of Exeter, standing in the field, a full grown puma. And I know what I'm looking at. I used to be a zookeeper. Oh, okay. So you've got a you've got a fair idea, you know, you're pretty learned in, in big cats and that sort of stuff. Yeah, this wasn't a domestic cat, it wasn't a fox and it wasn't a dog. It was a tumour. And I've also, a few years prior to that, I'd examined a kill up in North Devon where yep. a farmer found one of his sheep and he, he called me in to look at it. Its neck bones had been dislocated, so it's not a bit in the neck, dislocated the neck bones. And then the fleece and the skin had been peeled back, almost like you peel a banana off a skin or, or the, the skin off a banana, sorry, uh, or the, 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 the skin off a kipper. Uh, peeled yep. back very neatly and the flesh picked clean it wasn't a messy kill uh, there wasn't um, the chewing of, of the bones you'd get with dogs and it was very similar to kills I've seen in Africa you mean from big cats from big cats yeah so why are they so meticulous when they um, when they clean a clean an animal after a kill it's to do with the way they they eat and, and the way they kill uh, dogs when they attack sheep will bite at their legs and their flanks yep. and cause terrible wounds to bring it down and then they'll consume not they'll consume most of the flesh and the organs as well big cats um tend to kill by biting the neck and either dislocating the, the neck bones or suffocating their prey and then they yep. using their very rough tongs they'll rasp the the flesh from the bones so it's it's all cleaned away very very clinically and you won't get the big bite marks generally that you do from um, large dogs sure can some of the can some of the fact that the flesh is all stripped can that be put down to other scavengers coming in afterwards oh, or sure. is that yes certainly. they, they would yep. do that as well but um, with a dog kill all the dog kills i've seen the bones have been chewed really chomped up this was very clinical I and mean, it hadn't been dead that long it had been dead a yeah. couple of days it's fascinating and so you're the man to call if there's mysterious cattle mutilations and things like that as well i've never investigated a cattle mutilation i've hunted cryptids all over the world i've, I've been down to tasmania um three times on a trail of the, the tasmanian wolf the tiger there yeah the thylacine. yeah, yeah. And I've, I've hunted the Yeti in northern India, um, the giant anaconda in Guyana, Mongolian death worm. Of all the places I've been, Mongolia is probably the most amazing and the most alien. Uh, yeah. Gushen Almasti, the, the wild man of the Caucasus Mountain. And so someone who's really at the coalface of the whole um, cryptozoology movement, you know, you're out there, you're like me, you're passionate for, the, for some answers, for some evidence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you, you won't find the answers to these mysteries sitting in you know in front of a computer or you know sitting in your ivory tower saying oh no this can't possibly exist because i would have known about it you're going to make those discoveries yep. by going out and looking for the damn thing and the Absolutely. only the only real obstacle is that the green folding stuff yep because you know i i spend two or three weeks in the field when I'm looking for these creatures, when I should be spending months and months. When they first went out to uh, try and film the snow leopard in the 1970s, in the early 70s, it took them something like six years 
like to catch the snow leopard on film in the Himalayas. And that's an animal we know that exists. Yep. So it, it's, it's, not, yeah, it's not TV, is it? Every, where everything gets wound up in 60 minutes and, you know, you, you show up, you find your evidence, you document it and you leave. Yeah, I mean, it, these things take time, don't they? Yeah. I remember years ago, some production company wanting to do a documentary with us and I said, but, oh, you must guarantee we can find the creature. Yep. <laughs> I said, that's probably the <laughs> most stupid, that. yeah. stupid thing I've ever heard. I've actually, what's, yeah, I mean, it's not unique because I've heard um, a similar situation through a production company in this side of the world um, for someone who's going to do a ghost show, you know, with a ghost hunting sort of mm. shows. They said, can you guarantee some paranormal activity? Otherwise, you know, it's, it's not worth doing. Um, so you can see how these, you can see how these shows fall into, um, you know, faking things and throwing stones around and banging doors and yeah. that sort of stuff. But the it's worst, just entertainment value, isn't it? The worst one we ever had was, there was, um, a TV show in Britain called Jane Golding Investigates. And Jane Golding is, um, the wife of this presenter called Jonathan Ross. And she's now, um, yeah. at, yeah. Involved yeah. in film now, she's a you know writes screenplays and stuff, and she'd done this series where she was investigating ghosts and stuff. And the researchers approached me because they wanted to do something a bit more science based, and they wanted to do something in cryptozoology, but they hadn't got a huge budget, so they had to stay in Britain or Europe. And I said, well, what you could do is investigate lake monsters in Ireland and Scotland that are almost certainly immensely big eels, because eels. Yep. You know, they, they live in fresh water. Um, when they get ready to breed, they go out into into the sea. And the ones in Europe go to the Sargasso Sea. They breed and die, and the babies come back again to the ancestral waters. Every so often, it's theorised you get one that doesn't sexually develop. And it stays yep. in fresh water, getting bigger and bigger and older and older. Uh, there was a, a sighting of an eel uh, in the shallows at Loch Ness in 2004 while some Canadian tourists, and they said it was 25 feet long. So I said, you know, this is much more likely than any kind of prehistoric survivor. If it's, if there is a lot less monster, or if that these creatures in Irish lakes and other lakes uh, are real, they're almost certainly big fish. So I, I said, what we could do, we could get a number of boys and suspend uh, from the boys hessian sacks full of bait, meat, um, uh, bone meal, blood, dried blood, Sure. Eels have got such a great... like big burly bomb sort of a thing. Yeah, they've, yeah, they've got a great sense of smell. And uh, if something gets a hold of one of these sacks and pulls it, and it pulls the boy underwater, you know that there's something bigger in that lake than should be actually there. And you might just be able to get some film of it if you can get it close enough. And the research... we, yeah, we... yeah, sorry, go ahead. The researcher said, "Oh, that's great! Oh, we love that. That's a brilliant idea. It make great television." Well, we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks on that. They got back to us and said, oh, the producer doesn't want to do it because it's too real. It's too realistic. Too real? It's too real, okay. yeah. It's, it's like natural history. It's not anything to do with guardian angels or alien abductions. I suppose it, it kind of um, it ruins the romanticism of it, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> it's too factual like that. Yeah. I mean, I've well, got there, a there. very, very, very low opinion of the media in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. They've That's got a, they've got their own agenda. They're not they're not interested in the truth. They've got the story no. they want to tell. I mean, one of the the, the thing the first time I was out hunting for the Tasmanian wolf, um, this TV company from a, a an Australian station wanted to do an interview with us and and follow us around setting up camera traps and stuff. And there's this stupid woman that was obsessed with Bigfoot. And she said, oh, you've been hunting Bigfoot, haven't you? And I said, no, I've never hunted for Bigfoot. I've hunted for the Yeti in northern India, and I've hunted for the Orang Pendek in Sumatra, yep. and uh, uh, the, the, the Almast in the Caucasus, but ne never Bigfoot in North America. And she said, well, I've hunted for Bigfoot. I said, well, I'm telling you, I've never hunted for Bigfoot. I've hunted for all these other things, but not Bigfoot. And, of course, when they, they did this story, she said, oh, and this team has also hunted for Bigfoot. And I actually wrote to the TV station and said, talking to this idiot was like talking to a retarded little girl. <laughs> okay. So, and she was, a, she was a researcher, was she? Uh, no, she was um, uh, a presenter on this, this programme. 
this like, okay. news program, and there was a, 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 a piece on their website as well about it. And another thing, they wanted a shot of us in the pub discussing the Tasmanian wolf in the pub and what we yep. do. And this was all artifice. It was all just set up by them. And then they yep. sniffed us for the drinks. <laughs> they had a for us. And then they, they buggered off without paying the bill. Oh, interesting. I wonder if that production company is still in business. I have very, very low opinion of that. Very, very low opinion. What you have a high opinion of, though, is the Orang Pendek because you have conducted numerous uh, field studies in the search for uh, what, what you describe as, or you call the forgotten ape, don't you? Which yeah. is a short bipedal ape uh, has been sighted in particularly West Sumatra over the years. Um, I was very interested um, in your book, and that's sort of what brought me um, to speak with you um, today. Um, when they had the discovery on uh, it's Flores Island, isn't it, with the uh, Hobbit people? Hobbitians, um, yeah. Correct, yeah. Um, now, that was sort of about seven or eight years ago, wasn't it, from memory? And they were, for people who don't know, they were um, discovery of a race of uh, bipedal sort of humanoids that lived up until 50,000 years ago, which were distinct from um, the usual chain of um, events and when it came to ev evolution. So when you put two and two together, the reports of the Serang Pendek um, and, and being in close proximity to an island um, such as Flores, I think that's sort of around um, where the Komodo dragons are as well, aren't they? Is that correct? Yeah, they're, they're further east on Komodo. Uh, yep. well, they are on Flores, but they're also on Komodo and Rincha as well. They're not on Sumatra, okay. where the Orang Pendek is. Yeah. Okay. Um, so anyway, that got me interested, obviously, in the whole thing because it, it held some weight for me. My experience in bipedal hairy ape men um, basically comes from you know what I, what I see on TV and the you know some of the rubbish you'll see on those Finding Bigfoot shows and that sort of stuff. But I not found the Orang Pendek. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but Littlefoot, they call them colloquially, don't they? Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, that, that interests me. And I thought, you know, if there is going to be an undiscovered sort of bipedal creature, it's, it's likely to be in an area. We, we touched on um, cryptids and so forth from, you know, like lake monsters and stuff like that, which a process of misidentification, mis, um, I think, comes into it a lot. And I think your theory about them being giant eels holds a lot of weight. So... If there was to be a creature like this, you know, that would be in the right spot. So you first conducted, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just going off my research notes, but you conducted your first uh, sort of expedition in, in Sumatra around 2003. Is yeah, that, that was the first uh, Sumatra expedition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what did that, um, did you take some people from a university with you who, who made up the team? Was it that was, just you? That was or? myself, a guy called Dr. Chris Clark, and a guy called John yep. Hare. And yep. we decided to do this. Uh, Chris wanted to do it more than anybody. He really wanted to visit Sumatra. And uh, we yep. went over there. We got a native guide called Sahar. And he was a shaman of a local tribe. And if you, if you looked at him, you'd think he was like a, he could pass for like a, an accountant or a stockbroker if you put him in a suit. I'm assuming little man in glasses. But he was a, a tiger shaman because his tribe venerate the tiger. And he was our guide, and he was absolutely brilliant. And we talked to a lady called Debbie Martyr, who was an English woman, who started off as a travel writer, traveling around the world. And um, yep. she'd come to Sumatra a number of years before, heard about the Orang Pendek, and then sort of dismissed it as just a local story. And mm -hmm. uh, she was talking to one of the guides once when she was in the jungle, and she was saying, what animals do you get around here? And they said, oh, you get... Um, rhino, and you get elephants and tigers, and you get the orang pendek. And she says, Isn't that just a, a story? And they said, No, 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 it's a real animal, but you don't see it very often, but, it, but it's real. Then, about a month later, she actually saw one of these things step out into a, uh, a forest clearing, and she saw them uh, over the years a total of four times. So she stayed in Sumatra, and she now works for the Indonesian Tiger Conservation Group. And she's one of the main people in that. And she, she's seen it multiple times. So she was kind of independent to to the myth, so to speak, and, until she saw it with her own yeah. eyes. And then she thought, hang on, there is something to this. Yeah. 
Um, and you linked up with her, and, and she kind of joined the team. Was she a local guide along with uh, No, with she didn't come with us into the jungle. She had spent an awful lot of time in the jungle. We, we went and interviewed her, and she um, linked us up with, with our guide, Sahar, and, and you know, suggested we go to a place called Gunung Tuju um, in Karinchi Sablak National Park. And Gunung Tuju means the Lake of Seven Peaks. It's a lake, you know, a cold area of an extinct volcano, <coughs> and around it is cloud forest. So it's quite a exhausting climb to get up there. And when you get up there, it's very damp. And it's quite cold as well. It's not like you expect the jungle to be. It's it's very misty, very cool. It gets bitterly cold at night. Is it kind of a microclimate? Is it or well, there's this whole range there. It goes on for quite a, quite a way, and then around it is the lowland jungle, which is much warmer. But we're talking uh, an area, Karinchi Sablak National Park, is about the size of Wales. Okay, so decent size. Yeah, then. Wales, if you don't know, it's that, the, the bit of Britain that looks like a pig's head that sticks out um, you know, sure. to the west of it. So it's, it's a, it was a big old area. And um, we talked to witnesses, <coughs> and all their stories tallied. They were talking about a muscular animal um ranging in size usually from three and a half to, to uh, four feet with occasionally bigger ones at about five feet very broad shouldered long hair generally um black or gray and we ended up going back five different times we were so impressed with these witnesses and each time we found more evidence we found what sort of footprints hair we heard the animal calling um on the fourth trip we did a guy called dave archer came with us first guy first trip he'd ever done first day in the jungle he and the guide sahar see this thing hanging onto a tree stump you know trying not to be seen it's, it's clinging onto a tree stump and he said he its fur was very similar to that of a mountain gorilla, very sort of thick, um, thick, luxuriant fur. It's, he said it had a strikingly human-like face, very broad, powerful shoulders, and it realised it had been seen, and it was panicking a bit. It looked frightened, and then it climbed down from the tree and walked away on its hind legs like a man, not on all fours like um, an orangutan or a monkey. And Sahar had lived in the in the jungle for seventeen years. That was the first time he had seen one. And he was familiar. What? With um, sorry, jungle. just interrupt. What? What sort of? Do they have apes in in the um, Sumatran jungle? They do, but not in that part of Sumatra. They have two types of okay. orangutan. They have uh, up in the north. They have the Sumatran orangutan, and then uh, only discovered as recently as uh, two thousand and seventeen, which is a very pertinent thing to hold in mind. There's a whole new species of orangutan um, in central Sumatra uh, called the Tapanuli orangutan. That's totally distinct from the, the um, Sumatran orangutan. But where we were in West Sumatra, there are no known orangutans. And <clears throat> this thing is very different from an orangutan. It spends most of its time on the forest floor, whereas orangutans are arboreal. They spend 99.9% yep. of the time in the trees. These things spend most of the time on the forest floor. And they walk erect like uh, a man, and they're generally described as having dark hair. So it was sort of an orangey, reddish sort of colour. Is that correct? No, it's generally generally black. Or, oh, okay. Or Sorry. reddish yep. black. There are occasional sightings where they have a sort of yellowish, honey-coloured fur, and uh, even rarer ones where they've got gingery fur. But almost all of the sightings. I have a creature that's dark grey or black. The last time I was there, we got together about 20 witnesses who had either seen the creature or seen its footprints, and that they were all agreeing on, you know, the description of this thing having grey or black fur, barrel chest, face like a monkey. Okay. So, but there were, yeah, sorry, but the, the features you described, they were more human, is that correct? Uh, they, uh, Dave said it had a strikingly human face, and some mm -hmm. of the people have said it's got very human-looking eyes. But it's got the flat nose and the brow ridge, 
and, and the powerful jaw uh, of an ape. Um, the last time we were there as well, we found masses of footprints and handprints. And the footprints are interesting. I've found many of these. And they have very broad heels, which makes sense for weight bearing for a bipedal animal. They have a thick, broad, human-like heel, four toes at the front, and a semi-prehensile um, big toe that sticks out at the side of the foot. With the handprints, uh, they're very like the handprints of a gorilla, only smaller, thick sausage-like fingers and a thumb. If you look at the handprints uh, of an orangutan, they've got tiny little thumbs and great long fingers as they clamber around in trees. And when they come down to the ground, sure. they will often walk on the edges of their foot. So they have these weird footprints that look nothing like the uh, orangutan neck. And also we've got hair that's been analysed by um, a guy called Lars Thomas, who works at Copenhagen University. And he's a rec recognised expert in mammal hair. And he said the DNA in this hair sample was <coughs> too degraded to be of any use. But he looked at the structure of the hair, the internal structure of it and the scales on the hair. And he said, uh, whatever this hair came from, it's unknown to science. It's similar to an orangutan, but distinct. And his words were, I'm forced to conclude that there is a large unknown primate living in Sumatra. So it's definitely unique. It's definitely something that is unknown to science at yeah. this point. Now, you mentioned Homo floresiensis earlier on. And some people have linked that sure. with the orangutan deck, but they're two very different things. Um, Homo floresiensis, it made fire, it hunted with spears. Um, it, it was much more sophisticated than the orangutan deck. The orangutan deck will throw rocks and sticks if it feels threatened, but it's much more bestial, much more ape-like. Than Homo floresiensis, but there is there are stories in the jungles of Sumatra of a second upright walking creature that they called Orang Kardil, which they say is smaller and more slightly built than the Orang Pendek, and it generally goes naked in the jungle, but it has it has long hair on its head, but its body isn't hairy like the Orang Pendek, and it lives in little tribes and it hunts with sharpened bamboo spears, and art which and sort of, uh, you know, intelligent yeah, guidance. Yeah, and that doesn't. sounds much more like Homo floresiensis. Our guide, Sahar, yeah. who sadly passed away now, but he said his father back in the 1980s was on a trading trip with another man and they were going through the jungle to other settlements to trade rice for other goods. And they'd made camp one evening and they'd got some of this rice cooking it in a pot um, <clears throat> so the story goes, this tiny long-haired man came out of the forest and started eating the rice in the pot. So Sahar's father's friend killed it with a parang, which is similar to a machete. Um, yeah. Dozens more of these little men appeared and speared this guy to death with bamboo spears, but they didn't attack Sahar's father, who had not been involved in killing this one of them. That was in about 1981. But reports of these things are much, much rarer than they are of the Orang Pendek. As, as far as I know, there's been no credible reports for quite some time of, of these things. So that was dating back to the early 80s, was kind of the last time there was a detailed uh, well, an eyewitness now, sighting? There was a story or... from further south in Sumatra of some of these things being seen, yep. but it seemed to be more like um, you know, a media creation, newspaper to sell newspapers. There wasn't much credibility to it. One of our, another one of our local guides looked into it, and he said it was nonsense. So was that a, was that the information came from a tourist or someone who was on a sort of a jungle adventure? Uh, yeah, it was um, a local person, I suppose, who's seen these things in a, in a national park further south. But the story was very much, by the people in Sumatra, it was very much trashed. Now, the interesting... Yeah. Okay, so some local yeah. BS to, to yeah. make a few bucks. 
The interesting thing know. about the orang okay. the orang cardil, which means that tiny person. Orang pendek means the short man. Um, uh, orang cardil means the tiny man. Uh, <clears throat> and the interesting thing about Homo floresiensis on Flores, when they found that, they thought it was a dwarf island form of Homo erectus originally. Homo erectus came out of Africa and it gave rise to um, uh, Neanderthals and um, Denis Denisovans and, and all yeah. these other species. But more recently, an Australian group of paleontologists have had a closer look at, at the bones. And looking at the wrist bones and the shape of the skull, I think it's much more closely related uh, to another species of ancient hominin called Homo habilis, which was the first one that created um, stone tools. Its name means handyman. Now that was supposed to have died out nearly two million years ago. And up until then, nobody had even considered that it left Africa. Now, since that time, we've had uh, a new species of fossil hominin from the Philippines, Homo lutsonensis, which seems to be very similar to Homo floresiensis, and also seems to have been um, descended from Homo habilis. On mainland Asia and China, there are remains of two uh, hominins from Red Deer Cave. They haven't been given names yet, uh, but both of these look very much like they're from this Homo habilis lineage. But they were around only 10,000 years ago. Homo floresiensis and Homo um, lutsonensis were about 50,000 years ago. But these ones from China seem to have been much, much more recent, only 10,000 years ago. And we had no idea uh, Homo habilis had had this lineage outside of Africa. Um, this is half a world away from Africa. So it begs the question, if that can happen, what the hell else is out there? Well, they've used the sort of Lambridge theory uh, to explain away some of the lock, uh, like the Loch Ness monster and so forth. You know, they're saying that, you know, any, anywhere that was connected to the sea, or in this case, anywhere that was connected, you know, continents were connected via uh, Lambridge that no longer exists. You know, these these creatures have gravitated, or you know, from one part of the world to another. So I suppose um, that's one way to look at it. Another is, you know is the origin of life and the evolution of, of man, um, you know, is it just in Africa or is it, you know, could it have been spread across other continents, you know? We, we no, don't really know at this point. It's looking now that, that a number of these ancient hominins left Africa, not just Homo erectus, but several of them, and they had lineages. Um, yeah. There was some environmental DNA in 2018, collected from a pool in Bhutan <coughs> by a, um, an English expedition run by a guy called Mark Evans, who's a vet. And eDNA, e environmental DNA, is the bits of cells that slough off the skin of a, a creature into the environment. And water is a very good one for preserving it. So they took water samples from this pool where animals had grown. And they found a very rare uh, species of, uh, of wild um, mountain sheep was drinking from there. But they also found the eDNA from a primate. And whatever this primate was, it shared 99% of its genetic makeup with man. So it's at least as closely related to human beings as chimpanzees. This is in Bhutan in the Himalayas, exactly where the Yeti is spotted. So there's nothing known to science in that area that should yield that, that DNA. Uh, do, sorry, do, do Yeti sightings extend into Oh, yes, Bhutan? yes. The local um, name for it is Maigor. They do. Yeah. It's one of the yeah. best places for Yeti sightings is, is Bhutan. It's so undisturbed. I was up in northern India mm. back in 2010 uh, in the, the Garo Hills in Meghalaya. And that local name for the Yeti there is um, the Mande Burung. And it's seen all through Megala the mountains of Megalaya, up through a sam where it's called Kongleng Po, and it on into Bhutan, where they call it Maigor. And we talked to hill tribes. Were all, once again, they were all describing the same animal and the same sort of behavior. They said it looked very like a gorilla, 
It's standing on its hind legs rather than on all fours. Long black hair. The Yeti isn't white, it's black or brown. Um, it's a very gorilla-like face, very muscular, uh, walking around on two legs, about three metres, ten feet tall. And a lot of them said it, it did this sort of display where it would shake the vegetation uh, and roar, which is what gorillas do when they feel threatened. So it's got a very gorilla-like response. Another guy said he saw a female eating bamboo from a stand of bamboo and suckling a, a youngster. Another guy said he, he watched one build a huge nest in the way that gorillas build nests. And these are like people from hill tribes that have nothing to gain from lying. Absolutely nothing to say. <clears throat> no. So these, these are local people with no agenda or anything like that? No. It's, there's no real tourist industry in there. They're not trying to attract tourists. They weren't being paid to make yep. these stories up. I mean, oftentimes you'll find that yep. local people are astounded that you're interested. Is that right? Have they become blasé? Yeah, like that happened in, in Russia when I was on a trail of the, uh, the Almasti in the Caucasus Mountains. I was talking to an old lady who had sure. seen one um, shortly after World War II, and her husband had seen one much, much more recently. And she couldn't understand why we'd come all the way from England to look for this creature that to her was no more fantastical than a bear or a wolf, maybe a little rarer. But <clears throat> the Russians took it so seriously that they had a commission in the 60s to look for it called the Snowman Commission. They had some of their top, top sure. scientists like Peter Smolin and um, uh, Boris Prozhnev and people like that were attached to it and it was based at the Darwin Museum and it was finally disbanded but it's the, it's been uh, reinstated now there's a new Snowman Commission in Russia to look for it. I remember sorry I remember reading a uh, story in in one of those sort of um, big volumes of mysteries and cryptids and stuff that, that they used to put out sort of in the 80s sort of yeah Arthur C. Clarke Charles mm. Burlitz kind of books and things like that Anyway, I remember, <laughs> I hear your snare there. <laughs> I um, remember reading a story about a Russian kind of wild man that they found uh, post-World War II, um, somewhere in the area you were, you were talking about earlier. Um, and uh, the creature unfortunately died or, or was shot or something like that. They thought it was a, you know, some, a, some sort of threat to a military installation anyway. Um, does that does that story ring any yes, bells with you? Yeah. I was always fascinated this by that. By a doctor. Uh, he was told to examine yeah, this, this creature. They brought it in. They said he said it was about seven feet tall, thick brow ridge, covered mm. with hair. It sweated profusely when it was indoors. When it was in heated building. Yeah. He said it didn't show any signs of aggression, and he, he said it wasn't someone in disguise. His, he had to work out if it wasn't, you know, somebody in disguise. And he said, no, it's some sort of... The, Apparently, they yeah, shot sir. it later on. That's right, yeah. And it all sort of fell behind the Iron Curtain. The other, I think the other story, didn't hear much more about it. The other big story from there was um, the capture in 1850 of a female Almasti in the Western Caucasus. And yeah. She was caught and kept on a farm. They called her Zaina. She was about six foot nine, black skin, reddish black hair, very ape-like face. And she tamed down. Once again, she couldn't tolerate being in a heated uh, room. So they had a, a, a sort of stockade for her outside. And she did menial tasks at the, the farm, like pumping around um, great big sacks full of flour and stuff and moving machinery. And but she never learned to speak. She got very tame, but she never learned to speak. Uh, but if she got hold of liquor, she would just drink and drink and drink until she was insensible. And um, <laughs> a number of the local men raped her when she was in that condition. And she had a number of hybrid babies. And the first one, so the story goes, she tried to wash in a river and the shock killed them. So subsequently they were taken away from yeah. her and raised by families in the village. And apparently these people... They had very swarthy skin. They were very big and very strong, but they looked like modern humans. Um, they were supposed to be able to be so strong that they could 
bite to the back of the chair when someone was sitting in it and lift the chair up with just their teeth and jaws and they'd crack nuts with their teeth. Uh, the youngest son was a guy called Quit, and he died in the mid-50s. And um, Russian investigators found his grave, and they managed to get hold of his skull. And his skull looks like the skull of a modern human, but it's got quite robust jaws. And this was in the Darwin Museum at Moscow for many years. And then uh, a guy called Igor Burtsev brought uh, he donated two teeth from the skull to a British geneticist called Professor Brian Sykes. And Brian Sykes was um, a very renowned geneticist, very well respected. He was running this project where he was asking for hair samples from mystery primates because he, was, he perfected a way of isolating DNA of uh, identifying the species exactly um, <coughs> uh, without any contaminants. All the hair he got turned out to be from wolves and bears and dogs and horses and other red herring, but he got mitochondrial DNA uh, from the inside of these two teeth from the skull of this man quick. The mitochondrial DNA is passed down the female line. Mitochondria are the little organelles in cells that um, release energy, and they're always from the female side. And the DNA he extracted from that, he says, is sub-Saharan African, or whatever ever it is, it's pre-human. It's not homo sapiens. He reckons wow. this species, whatever it was, would have arose in West Africa and migrated out of Africa through Central Asia into the Caucasus. And he thinks they could well still, still be there. And he's still working on this DNA sample. How long has he had the sample for? Oh, um, he's had the sample for about four, four years now. The last, the last I heard from okay. him and another um, geneticist were, were still working on it. That's the last I heard. Well, obviously, clinical study takes time, doesn't it? What what weight do you give to um, the naysayers? If, if we're talking about yetis and, and Sumatran uh, beasts and so forth, to the naysayers that, um, you know, a breeding population needs to be sustained and these creatures, not so much in the orang pendix uh, case, but, you know, these sort of eight, nine foot, ten foot creatures, um, how are they sustaining themselves? You know, the the calorie load that they would need um, just for their daily, you know, energy intake and so forth is, is, is pretty hard to come by in these environments or, or is there plenty, plenty of food for food. a creature um, of that size? One of the, uh, when we went to Russia, <coughs> we went with um, a Ukrainian biologist called Gregory Panchenko who'd actually seen one of these creatures. And he says, he says okay. that their ecological twin is the brown bear. They can live wherever the brown bear lives, and they have more, more or less the same diet as the brown bear. As the brown bear, they eat a wide variety of plants, um, roots, berries, herbs. <clears throat> they also eat carrion, dead animals. And they also hunt. Yep. They will, they will hurl rocks with immense force and accuracy, and kill things like deer and domestic animals. Yep. Because they do um, report finding skeletons of deer and, and so forth that look like they've had sort of um, some sort of blunt trauma yes, to the head, don't they? they seem to have been wrenched apart by something with hands, not torn apart with teeth and claws like a bear or a wolf. Something that's ripped, like yeah. you would rip the leg of a chicken. We... chicken. <clears throat> Sure. We have a um, New Zealand version of Bigfoot called the Moihau yes, Man. I'm not sure if you've, uh, you've heard of it. You, you have. I have a fellow come on the show sometimes, Mark Capel, who's, who he goes and looks for it effectively down an area called the Coromandel. Um, and what's always got me is the area of the Coromandel has a lot of um, little wild boars and you know, there's a lot of lot of pigs and stuff. It's not, it's not really an area you find deer and stuff, but I've always been... Um, interested in the in the fact that these animals have to, as I said before, have to sustain themselves somehow. So to to place them in an area where um, you know they wouldn't have enough food to basically sustain themselves, 
that would be a big thing for me. He started looking at the, um, he put a more paranormal sort of spin on things and started looking at the fact that they could be interdimensional beings or they could be alien or something like that. But hearing from you, it sounds like, you know, there's, there's some sort of missing link element to this or, you know, something in the evolutionary cycle has, has um, spiraled off and, and these creatures well, are resolved. Well, we know and... now there are far, far more hominins that, are, that, that means uh, relative to the ancestors of man. Far more than we ever dreamed of. They're, they're yeah. finding more of them every year. And not just fossils of them, they're finding genetic markers on human population. Sub-Saharan Africans, they have a genetic marker from some sort of hominin that their ancestors mated with that we don't have the bones for. You know that Europeans, they have about 4% yep. Neanderthal in them. Well, Africans have yep. a proportion of something completely different. Uh, in Bhutan, uh, the people there, they have um, uh, some of the genes of the Denisovans, the recently discovered Denisovans, and the genes seem to uh, deal with adaptation to high climate high altitude um, um, it means you can derive oxygen better from a thinner atmosphere then around the yep. New Guinea area <clears throat> the population there they have genetic markers in their makeup that once again different from anybody else's and different from anything in the fossil record so all of these things are, are and um, they're just pointing now so there being so much many more of these things than we ever dreamt of. And the chances of some of them or their descendants still being around, I think, are very good. I mean, with the orang pendek, I think that's a, that's a ground-dwelling orangutan rather than a hominin. I think that's an ape because uh, we've got yep. <clears throat> the Bornean orangutan, the Sumatran orangutan, and the Tapanuli orangutan. Now, the areas where they live, Borneo and Sumatra, they were once part of a larger landmass called Sundar that was um, attached to the Malayan Peninsula. And there were several different types of orangutan. Uh, and they all speciated quite a long time ago. The um, Bornean Sumatran split off about 400,000 years ago before uh, this landmass broke up by rising sea levels and became islands. I think the orang pendek is just another species of orangutan, but it's one that is adapted for living on the forest floor. So it moves around on the forest floor rather than in the trees. And the hair samples seem to back this up as well. Mm. Um, you know, I think the smoking gun is always, you know, a body. Why can't we find a body? Um, why has no one found a body? Are you, do you put that down to the remoteness of the well, area? <clears throat> remoteness of area, else? small population, and the fact that bones last don't last very long at all in the jungle. They don't last long in forests, and no. certainly not in jungles. I mean, I've found a couple of skeletons of Malayan tapir that were killed by tigers when I've been there, and the bones just... Yep. The flesh is stripped by scavengers, and then the, the bones are broken down by things like rodents, like porcupines and mice that eat it for the, for the um, calcium in it. So unless you, you're very lucky to stumble over a, a relatively fresh kill, those bones are going to be scattered for miles, and they're going to be reclaimed by, by um, the forest. I mean, people have asked and it's a relatively yeah. unhospitable area, obviously. It's not somewhere you People just go for fun, is it? Hunters in North America and Canada and the States, how many dead bears they've seen. And it's almost zero, apart from ones that have been shot or hit by cars. Yeah. So it's a, it's a yeah. global phenomenon. Interesting. Could actually speak all day about this. It's just With the, it's blowing my the mind. Pendek, I would say, if I was a betting man, that would be the second most um, likely to exist out of all of the cryptids. 
Yeah, well, the, yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, that's sort of what got me interested because it, it, it does seem to have some weight to it. Your expedition in, in 2011, um, you know, anything unique from the, the 2003, uh, the t- 2003 expedition? Well, I've done five of them now, and sometimes, yeah, I've, I've done five expeditions now. Okay. And every time we've been, been there, we've <clears throat> found something. We've always found tracks. Um, we found we found a handprint yep. on the, the uh, 2011 one, and then on the last one we did, we found masses of tracks everywhere and handprints. And you could see where they've been ripping open um, rotten logs to get the grubs in as well, for, as well as eating um, uh, fruit and, and vegetables. And they will take insect larvae and stuff as well. I've heard the vocalizations of them. They seem to have... Yeah, tell, tell us about those because we, we hear the deep guttural um, sort of sounds that, that come from the Bigfoot and occasionally people will put up something on YouTube of a sort of mysterious sounding sort of animal. To me, a lot of these videos uh, sound like an animal that's injured in distress, um, something like that. Put it, You could put it down to that. So what's different the with the ring? The one thing and... that um, the guys all recognise the the sound it made. Uh, I've I've heard two different vocalizations from it. One of it, one of them is a sort of a hop, hop, hop sort of sound. Then the other is a, a much louder one, which I think is used for communication over long distances. And it sort of goes, <laughs> like nothing else in the jungle, nothing like a tiger or a bear. Or... No. Interesting. Um, did you manage to record no, anything? We of missed it? it. We got got the recorder out. Uh, that's the last time we were there. The guy got his recorder out and it, it just finished and we we're waiting for it to come again and it never did. It's, um, you know, it, it certainly sounds like there's plenty going on mm. in, uh, in Sumatra anyway. What's your uh, what's been your favourite sort of cryptid? The one I enjoyed the most was the Mongolian death worm, which I, I hope to go back and have a second crack at. Um, the Gobi Desert is, is enormous; sure. it's like the size of most in, of Europe, and but the population is only about a million, and they're mostly in the two main cities, um, yep. Ulaanbaatar and Delanzagab. When you get out into the desert proper, you can drive for days and days and days and not see any. Um, sign of any other human being. Uh, <clears throat> it's really like walking out onto another planet. You get areas that are covered by chips of mica. They call it the mirror because it looks like a huge mirror. Other areas are yeah. made up out of tiny little rocks that look like cat litter stretching up into infinity. Parts of it are all sort of red and look like the surface of Mars. It's amazing. We got caught in a, uh, a twister there, a desert, a, you know, a, a, uh, a, a, out in the desert. We got caught in, a, in what we thought was like a like little, a storm sort a of little thing, you know, sand devil. And it became this huge twister that tore through yeah. the, the camp. And I was clinging onto one of these sort of ex uh, Soviet army um, vehicles that we had. And I, I looked up and 20 foot above <laughs> the ground, I saw one of our drivers. Been whipped round and round and round, hanging onto the end, at the end of a shredded tent, and then like as quickly, it's like you know, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, and you look up through the eye of eye of the sort of the you know the, the twister, and then it was as quickly as it come, it had gone. Yeah, we saw mirages out in the desert that looked like huge lakes, or uh, in the distance, and you'd, you'd look like you'd see what looks like minarets, but it's all caused by heat haze. And yep. we talked to, we went for a thousand miles, and we talked to about two dozen witnesses, and they're all describing this burrowing creature, sort of brick red, um, elongate, like a salami or a graft excluder in shape, <coughs> uh, blunt at both ends, scaly, and they're terrified of it. It can send a whole community into a panic. We talked talk to a guy who saw it when he was a little boy. He was tending to his... Um, uh, his family's camels and, and goats, and he, he saw this thing lying in the desert, and he went and told his parents, and they just rounded up the animals 
and packed up the GUR, which is the, the circular tent sale, and they moved out of the area. They, they were so frightened of it. And we put. What, uh, how, how big do these things get? Two feet long. It's not big. It's quite hefty around, but it's not that long. I mean, there are yep. reports of them moving up to five feet long. But people we talk to, they generally say about two feet. Jeez. Yeah, they believe it's too. poisonous and it can spit. It can spit a, a corrosive Jeez. saliva. I see you've also had a hunt for giant that was in Guiana was in, um, in, in South America. And we were, yeah. our guide, there was a great guy called Damon Corey, who is the hereditary chief of the evil clan Arawak people. And he runs this company called First Nation Vacations. So if you want to go to South America or Guyana, he's the guy to contact. Uh, it was one of the, the few times we got financial backing. We got money from Capcom who wanted to link it into their uh, Monster Hunter games. But unfortunately, they wanted us to go in October, which yep. was <clears throat> the dry season. When we got over there, they'd been hit by the, the biggest drought in living memory. So all the rivers were really low, and we couldn't get out to the mm. very remote places where these huge snakes were, were supposedly seen. Yeah, you wouldn't. That's not a trip you'd catch me going on, Richard. I can assure you of that. Snakes oh, are my, snakes, uh, the bigger my the forte. I've, I've worked with immensely big crocodiles, <laughs> huge constricting snakes, venomous snakes, and spiders, scorpions. The one thing that makes my blood run cold and will make me squeal like a little girl are large moths. I'm terrified. Terrified of them. Absolutely. Moths. Give me a thirty-foot saltwater croc. <laughs> Over a moth any day. Really? I think I'll take the moth personally. But um, that's something I'd like. I live in a country that there isn't a lot of natural predators that are sort of coming after you. It's not Australia, which is which is good. Um, yeah, the most vicious thing we have is probably a, a you know a kakapo redback spider or something like that. But you know, you're living mostly urban. Um, areas you, you're not really going to run across too many of them, which is uh, which is good. We do we we get big sharks, we get white sharks quite a lot around the coastlines, but um, you know there's been limited attacks. There's probably been sort of six to ten attacks of, from sharks in New Zealand over the past sort of hundred years, I would think. So it's not not too prevalent. What um, keeping it or going back to the UK, um, we talked a little bit about the beast of Bodmin Moor. Why do all these big cats seem to be on moors? It's because that's where um, that's where the food is. It's away from human habitation, and also it's the e easier to see. And there are the more yeah. they're, they're easier to, for people to spot when they sure. are in the forest. I mean, obviously they're going to be in the forests as well. They're going to be in, in the forests, but well, they're easier to spot when they're out of the open on moor. Most people see them at night uh, driving along, and they they come out in front of a car and they catch it in the light. Now the, sure, the, the working theory on those is they were released um, after the, the Wildlife Act was um, was repelled sort of in the, yeah. the late 70s or 80s, wasn't it? Um, and a, sort of, um, a lot of the gentry and, and wealthy landowners sort of had their own private zoos and said, oh, yeah. bugger it. Well, the just, law was we'll changed. I think it was 77 they, just... they brought this law yeah. in was... after somebody got savaged by a lion. Yeah. But... Up until then, if you had the money in the space, okay. you could keep any animal you wanted. Any old duffer could start a zoo. <clears throat> and back in the, the 60s and the 50s, <laughs> there were loads of, of small, poor quality zoos dotted around Britain um, with really dodgy yep. safety regulations and cages. And also, people were keeping them as pets in their gardens as well. I mean, at one time, the 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 big famous um, department store, Harrods in London, their pet department would sell lions. One woman brought a gorilla. Yeah. And a lot of the people, when they brought these in, you had to pay a big license fee when they changed the law and prove you could keep them securely. A lot of people yep. just let them go. And what we're seeing is that the descendants of those animals. Has there, in your opinion, has there been sort of interspecies uh, breeding with these big cats as well? Uh, We're getting hybrids, hybrids sort of running around. But you get um, 
there are sightings of pumas and black leopards and other smaller cats like lynx and, and jungle cats and and then a number of them have been ki- killed or captured. Yep. Uh, several lynx have been captured or shot yep. in Britain. Uh, several Asian jungle cats. Um, several uh, leopard cats, which are not to be confused with leopards, they're much smaller spotted cats. And a puma was caught in in Venice, not far from Loch Ness of, of all places. And she lives right. a lot quite happily in the Highland Wildlife Park. And there have been plenty of sightings of these things with cubs. Now, over here in England, we used to have wolves and bears and wolverines and uh, not for thousands and thousands of Lions. years. Lions, yeah. Recent, you know, up until <laughs> a, few, a few hundred years ago, we had wolves. And a few hundred years further back than that, we had bears as well and lynx and, and wolverine running around. And, and we wiped them all out. So these things have got no population. There's a massive population of deers and rabbits and hare. And, and birds uh, for them to eat. So there's no population, uh, no uh, competition rather, and there's, there's lots and lots of food. I mean, upper class right wing idiots. Um, <coughs> I, I bloody can't stand the Conservative Party, I have to say. The ruling, the ruling part, part of Britain. That's <laughs> elitist, elitist, animal abusing, snobby, arrogant, and our media is completely obsessed with them. 79% of our newspapers are, are owned by rich, choice, sympathising millionaires. And the BBC, that's supposed to be partisan, is kissing their ass so much. You wouldn't believe the farcical, um, biased news we get from the BBC, demonising the, the then leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, who was the only decent bloke in politics as far back as I can remember. But they... They completely demonised him whilst kissing the arse of Boris Johnson, who's a, a buffoon. He's like President Trump light over here. Um, where was I going with this? I've digressed my hatred of the Conservative Party. Oh, yes, yeah. These upper class idiots um, that love killing animals for fun. 50 million Asian pheasants are released into the British countryside every year. 50 million. So rich tossers can shoot them for fun. And the gamekeepers will wipe out any natural predators like birds of prey and foxes and things um, for fear of them taking one or two of these rich people's pheasants, which is a ridiculous state of affairs. And also they chop down a lot of the forests in Britain because um, the pheasants like uh, fresh green shoots. So they cut down all the trees. So the earth loses... um, it's it's not that the earth itself isn't held together as well because the, the roots of the trees are, are, and bushes are holding the, the earth together. When they're yeah. cut down and you've only got little green shoots, the, the earth becomes very loose. So we've had massive floods caused by this, why this has happened. And, but uh, politicians don't care because they only care about the rich here and what we need is a bloody revolution we need a big swing to the left in what, um, what what's the regulations for keeping <coughs> a big cat now is that was that completely oh, out there are private do you require some sort of licensing but it, it's strictly regulated you've got to prove you can keep them competently and safely Stuff like that is best best off in the hands of, of yep. a responsible zoo. Yep. I used to be a zookeeper many, many years ago, back in the 80s. I specialised in um, reptiles, such as crocodiles, yep. alligators, snakes, lizards, and tortoises. Absolutely. Now, just before we go, I understand you've you've put recently put out another book, haven't you? Um, Commission yes, piece volume, and you've done it in two out volumes. Is volume that two correct? is due yeah. out um, in the autumn of two thousand and uh, uh, two thousand twenty-one. It was pushed back because of coronavirus. Okay, and it's it's yeah, based, uh, there's well, based on cryptids. Volume one, which is out it. now, is called Adventures in Cryptozoology, and it's an introduction to cryptozoology. It tells you about all the animals that were discovered recently in the past couple of hundred years, big animals like gorillas and acarpes and giant squid, 
or Shorter was just mythology and Komodo dragons. And it looks at all the famous cryptozoologists down through the years. <clears throat> and it starts to take a look chapter by chapter at different types of monster and cryptid. There's a, um, an art, uh, a chapter on dragon legends and what might be behind those, because those are completely universal, found in every culture. There's a, a chapter on lake monsters, chapter on sea serpents, chapter on mysterious uh, primates, a chapter on legendary beasts like um, the griffin and the unicorn and where those beliefs might have come from. And then it, uh, in volume two, which is out next year, we're going to be looking at things like the Tasmanian wolf, the giant anaconda. And then we're going to be looking at my own personal uh, accounts of my many adventures all around the world, thinking for things like the Yeti and the giant anaconda and the old Tassie wolf and the death worm and things like that. So it's, it's got some very good reviews online and it's available on Amazon. Oops. So yeah, Adventures in Cryptozoology. Yep. No, excellent. We'll put the link up. Um, when I post the podcast, we'll put the link up um, to, to buy it off Amazon as well. And your first book um, on the Orang Pandek uh, was Pendek. called, Excellent. what have we got Forgotten. here? Yeah, Forgotten. that's still available. The, yep. Yeah, that, that's, that's covers still the history of the sightings of Orang Pendek and similar things around the world. And then it looked at my first four expeditions, because I've done another expedition yep. after I published the book. Excellent. Fascinating, Richard. As, as I said before, I could actually talk to you all day because you're just covering off my wish list of, uh, of, of paranormal, is, for lack we, of a better term, encounters. We would have proven many of these things existed if we had the funds. Mm -hmm. If you had the funds to go out there and stay there for yep. several months with proper camera traps and, uh, you know, a decent decent amount of time in the field that's the key going over for two or three weeks it's pot luck you've got to spend a lot of time in the field got to be dedicated to it and that sadly costs money well hopefully someone's listening to this podcast and thinks i wouldn't mind throwing out a few shekels on uh, one of richard's adventures if it uh if it gets us some definitive proof of these things, um, much like they've done recently with yeah. uh, opening up the Skinwalker Ranch and so forth, I've heard a bit of negative press about it. But at the same time, you know, it's it's come to that point where there's all this talk and, and innuendo about these places. But until people get in there and investigate it for themselves, you know, the proper equipment, proper funding, as you say, and and for an extended period, we'll, uh, we'll never really know, will we? Uh, I'm hoping that sometime in my lifetime I'll be able to prove no, at least no. one of these things is out there. But say if, if you prove the Orang Pendex the eyes <laughs> of the world would be on Western Sumatra there. And maybe they'd stop the logging and the incursion from coffee plantations and the poaching that's threatening all these animals that, that share... The, the, the ecosystem with the Orang Pendek, like the Sumatran rhino. There may be fewer than 30 of them left on, on Earth. One of the rarest in the world. Yeah. The, Is that right? The Sumatran yeah, it's rhino not, is the smallest of all the and the most primitive. Rhino. It's very hairy, almost like the prehistoric woolly rhinoceros. But it's not much bigger than a cow. It's not like you know the white rhino from oh. Africa, which can weigh five tons. This is a much smaller animal. lives in the jungle. Um, very, very rare. The Javan rhino in, in Java, there's only about 60 of those left. Um, and the Tasmanian wolf, of course, is officially extinct, but it's been called the uh, the healthiest extinct animal you'll ever, you'll ever meet. And uh, I'm pretty convinced that that's still out there. And if we could find that, that would be a massive triumph of conservation. Every few years, um, sorry, every few years down in New Zealand, um, yeah. someone gets a sighting of a moa, the um, basically the largest yeah, bird that ever existed. Um, there is some remote parts of the South Island, like Fiordland and stuff, where um, you know people report them from time to time. Um, evidence is pretty sketchy. Um, it would be cool to find one, obviously, but um, 
yeah, I, in my opinion, yes, I think they, they probably long gone, unfortunately. Things, but right. um, hey, you know, but then again, um, in the 1940s, they discovered yeah. the Tuckahay, a, a, a bird like a, a giant flightless um, uh, yeah. waterfowl that was, you know, thought to have died out hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And they, they found that. <coughs> mm. There's, a, there's always hope, Richard. Hi, thanks, for, thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, excellent. Well, that was Richard Freeman, um, from who's an author and the director of uh, zoological director for the Center of Fourteen Center for Fourteen Zoology. Cheers. We'll see you later, Richard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is some-